0: Episode number 23 with Dave Martin. Uh, I've known Dave for a long time. He's currently a studio engineer and session bass player at Sweetwater in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, I was down there uh, just a few days ago and did a couple great podcasts and had a great chance to sit down and chat with Dave about his life touring all over the world and uh, he also had a very successful uh, studio in Nashville Tennessee for a long time with a very impressive array of outboard gear and classic vintage microphones Uh, but he's very knowledgeable I like his outlook on on life and the music industry and I hope you enjoy this episode goes like this hey Dave hey how you doing Darren? good buddy we're here at Sweetwater uh, with Dave Martin awesome uh, bass player producer engineer all-around fine guy and he's smiling largely now <laughs> uh, we met a few years ago when uh, when you came up to perform at the uh, Walters Theatre that's right uh, had a wonderful time too yeah, it was uh, we're a pleasure uh, you and your wife lovely wife was there um, and I've just been following you ever since. And, and I'm actually really excited to sit down and find out more about uh, where you came from and how you got to where you are right now, which is at Sweetwater. But yeah, uh, super talented uh, guy from what I've been following and, and seeing. So let's go back and uh, figure out what you're all about. Do you oh. know? <laughs> uh, probably not. not. <laughs> probably
1: not. But, but going back, I started playing bass a long time ago. I probably was 12, yeah, 11 or 12 when I started playing bass. And the way it worked is my dad plays guitar. Yeah. And he's 84 years old now, still plays some guitar. Does he? And has fun doing it. But I think what really had happened is my older brother one time had said, Oh, I think I'd like to be a bass player. Dad was also an Air Force pilot uh, in the US Air Force, yeah. and so he was in Japan a lot. Wow. Flying C-130s back and forth, so he bought, it was actually a Japanese copy of a Hoffner Beetle bass. No way. And and he brought it home. I think it's made out of balsa wood. Yeah. You know, it's, It wasn't much of a bass, but my brother tried it for about a week and decided it wasn't for him. So it was sitting around and I started playing it. Yeah. And so dad, you know, kind of realized I wanted to do that. And he showed me some stuff and I went on. And so by the time I was 12 or 13, I was playing in local bands like we did back then. Yeah. And in the eighth grade. So this was, would this be in Texas? This would be in mm-hmm. Abilene, Texas. Yeah. So, so when I was in the eighth grade, I was in the marching band playing a s- sousaphone. Yes, yeah. so I am a sousaphone player, much to the shame of my family. <laughs> and, and then in the orchestra, I joined then. But, but in the eighth grade, the student band director. So, you know, there's a guy who's worked there. And then it's basically like interns, yeah. you know, guys in their last year of college, and they'll make them student teachers. So he was the student band director. His name was Jeff Wofford, I think. And Jeff was ex-Air Force, so he was older, in his mid, late, mid to late 20s. So I met him, and he found out that I played electric bass and hired me to play in his country band. Cool. So I'm like, what, 13 years old? Yeah. At that point, and playing in American Legion or whatever it was. But it was, you know, I did that first gig, and this is probably 1970 or 71. Yeah. And they paid me $50. Wow. And it's like, dude, this rocks. And so that's what started that. And so I played with him and we had our rock bands around town, you know, all the stuff you do. Yeah. And so after high school, uh, you know, started college and then I got a call to go play with some guys on the road. Yeah. And I did my math and realized that in the 1970s in Texas, what a school teacher made was about $12,000 a year. Uh-huh. It was a long time ago, it was before yep. your time. Not really. And this guy offered me a gig in a bar band that paid two fifty a week, and I did the math and went, "Okay, so I could go to school for five years, become a teacher, and make twelve thousand a year, or I could quit college and go on the road and make twelve thousand a year." Yeah, and I could drink at work. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that you know how it goes and sleep in. Yeah, and sleep in, and somebody else comes and makes your bed up. You know, stay in a hotel, you have maid service. Yeah. So I did that and did the country band for a while. Somebody called me to do a disco band and rock bands, you know, so I kind of started to wear whatever they'd call me for. I'll go play. Yeah. You know, and I had reading skills from high school and college. So even then I did the occasional musical thing or a big band where I'm actually reading charts. So you did uh, music in college? Well, I was, I was going to be a music major. Yeah until I quit and decided to go be a, a beer yep, major. It, yeah. I majored in beer for a couple of years. Yeah. And so, you know, I had all that and I was playing around with a bunch of different bands and eventually, as since you've met her, got a call. I guess I knew her in town, but I got a call to go to a session in Abilene, which I had also been doing. Yeah. You know, a little local studio and I'd been doing that for a couple of years. And the guy called me and uh, asked me to come do a demo for the singer named Carolyn. And so we did, and basically, Carolyn and Martin and I have been together that long. So that's over 40 years at this point. Wow. So you just kind of love at first sight? Oh, yeah. Either that or she hired me and hadn't fired me yet. One of the two. <laughs> and. So anyway, we were on the road, we were doing like top 40 stuff when there was still the tail end of the hotel circuit, Yeah, you know, where you could, where you literally would, you'd leave town and you'd be out for eight months playing two weeks to four weeks at a time at different hotels across the country. Yeah. So we got to travel a lot and that, in many ways, that was the ideal job for us because we're tourists. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, sure, we play four hours a night, six nights a week, but that gives us all day to go see stuff. Yeah. And you know, basically every town has really cool stuff to see. You know, I mean, like when we were up at, at your theater, you know, Carolyn and I were out all the time. You know, we'd go over to Stratford or we'd
0: go yeah. to Mary Hill or you know, just the little towns, and they're cute as can be, and lots of cool stuff to see. What's well, amazing, uh, you know, we've both been on the road a lot. How many guys will just sit and sleep the day away? Uh, I'm one of those guys too, where I'll get up in the morning and the vehicle wherever we are and say who wants to go and and check this place out in 90 percent of the time i was you know me and possibly one other person sure but everyone else just wanted to just nah i'm just gonna sleep in and we're yeah we're not those people no and for and
1: as a matter of fact last weekend we talked about this i got a call to go down and and i was actually subbing for a, a bass player that works here at sweetwaters <laughs> got some health issues so yeah. I just went to, to do the gig but we were in El Paso Texas yeah and so number one I'm gonna go eat at my favorite Mexican place in El Paso yeah. and a couple of the guys from the band came and a couple you know got burgers and went to the room and then when we got back to the hotel I looked just like okay it's a long time between sound check and the gig so I just went for a walk and you know walking through El Paso I found a, an outlet store with some of the most stunning Lucchese boots ever that uh-huh. I didn't buy
0: <laughs> you know,
1: the, my favorite pair of boots was two thousand dollars, and I oh, went. Yeah, Carolyn yeah. would really be a little annoyed by that. Yeah, but you know, it's just literally—we always want to go see what's going on. Yeah, makes sense. And so, so that's really why I like to travel now: finding the good food and seeing the cool places to see. Yeah. So, in that order. In that order. <laughs> so anyway, after traveling with Carolyn for a while in '85. Well, we got married in 81, but in 85, we decided, I knew I wanted to try doing more session work because I'd been doing that in Texas. Yeah. And so, and Carolyn is a singer, so she needs to be where the best singers in the world are. So we moved to Nashville then. And it was, it was actually, it was great fun. You know, when we were first there, you don't have anything, but your bills aren't high. Yeah. You know, so you could go see stuff. And we got to where we, we met people and, and got more work you know, and we're still traveling when we were in there. And I started doing sessions, and so about seven or eight years later, through a strange twist of fate, I bought some recording gear. You know, for you may remember them. It was like two DA eighty eights. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And a Mackie sixteen oh four mixer. Yeah, I know exactly what it is. Yep. And so I bought. I actually bought those to do a project, a couple of projects. One of them is a you know, a couple of bizarre base related bluegrass projects and then uh, do one for Carolyn I still haven't finished the base related projects <laughs> <laughs> you know things get put aside yeah and I haven't gotten back to them and that grew I ended up getting some accounts even though you know that was all I had I got some session accounts
0: and ended up growing a gigantic basement studio so did you have a whole lot of actual rec- I mean obviously you were a session player but did you have a lot of engineering time at that point? No. Or, no. You were no. just something you were interested in and decided to start buying some stuff and Right, because you know I knew how to punch a button. Yeah.
1: But when I I had the first studio I worked at, which was in Abilene. Yeah. You know, the guy who owned it was nice enough that when he went out of town, he just gave me a key. Yeah. And that was that was the days he had a one-inch eight-track MCI, and I got to go play with it. For you know, so I did that and really didn't engineer again until I bought stuff. Yeah. You know, 15, 20 years later. And just learned this was the very early days of the internet. Yeah. We're talking about 93, yeah. 94. Yeah. You know, the World Wide Web didn't start until 93. People forget that. It's yeah. not that old. No. And so in that era there were news groups. Usenet was yes. what it was called. And there was a Usenet group called Rec Audio Pro. And it's based, it's text related. It's, you know, like, like the most simplified old school forum you ever saw. Uh, that one it was interesting because people who actually were real professionals in the audio business were there. So if I had questions, you know, I lurk around and just read whatever anybody does, but if I had a question, this place was great back in that era. Here's an example. Some kid, you know, somebody post just on this Usenet group. Said, so what's the difference? But, you know, what, what is a parametric EQ? The first person to answer that was Bob Orban. Wow. And the Orban parametric was like the industry standard for working guys. Yeah. The second person to answer was George Massenberg, who designed the silly thing. <laughs> you know, so, so there were people like that that I could ask questions of. Yeah. And because I was doing sessions, I was with engineers every day. So if I got something, if something got wacky, I could always call someone and I'd go, man, how do I do this? Yeah. And, and it would help. So for me, the path to becoming an engineer could not have happened had it not been for you know, those early people, and then especially the Nashville engineers, who, you know, they're not hiding anything. Yeah, you know, And even today, there's a marvelous and, and very creative engineer and producer named Bill Vorndick. Bill did a bunch of the early Allison records. Okay, yeah. he did a bunch of the early Ronda Vincent records. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's still doing great stuff. Uh, the and I talked to Bill last week, and if I have a question about and it regards recording acoustic instruments, yeah, Bill knows more than anybody. Yeah, and his records sound great. You remember all those mentioned Jerry Douglas as we were talking. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the MCA Master Series records? Yeah. Which were the series, they were like instrumental bluegrass records yeah. that MCA did. Bill was the engineer and producer. Oh, wow. So, you know, if, if I need to know how to record a dobro, the first time I, I had one, I called Bill and went, so how do I do that? And he's happy to tell me. Yeah. Because really, it, there's no secrets in this business. You know, and the guys who try to act like it's a science. No. No, it's not a sign. because if I'm recording, you know, pick an instrument, if I'm recording a grand piano and you record the grand piano, neither of us really matter as long as we don't really screw it up. What's going to make
0: it either a great recording or a bad recording is the person playing it, who's sitting behind the piano. Yeah. Because how many times have you been, you know, with the same piano and it sounds different Every single time, oh, absolutely, on. and it's just a piano. You think how different could it possibly sound? And you know, hey. with a drum kit, a house kit, or anything.
1: Oh, uh, house
0: kit is the best example yeah. I know because I I had a house kit
1: in my studio in Nashville. I yeah. we hadn't gotten to that I actually. After building those things and built a giant home studio, and finally, I was the, we were so busy with with the accounts that we had yeah. that, you know, if you have live drums in a basement they're gonna get all in the rest of the house. Yeah, It's kind of the rules. And so, you know, I was working so much and live microphones. I think we had singers generally were in the bedroom and, you know, were in the laundry room. So it was really interfering with Carolyn's life. Yeah, You know, couldn't watch TV, couldn't get on the treadmill, you know, because it, I had live microphones up. So we bought a place outside of Nashville and I built a 2000 square foot studio from the ground up, two room facility. Yeah. So that I could do that and Carolyn could work, you know, or do the stuff, do stuff at home like people who have homes. Yeah. And I had a house kit, essentially the same one for 15 years. But I used more than one drummer. Yeah. And every drummer that comes in, they sound like, you know, if you have a Tommy Wells, that's going to be a different sound. I think you met Tommy because he was up with Carolyn yeah. when we were there. And then you get somebody like Eddie Bayer's, it's a completely different sound and I didn't do anything.
0: Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it?
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's what makes it fun, really.
0: Yeah. And, it, and it's great because you don't have to worry about swapping out the kit, you just swap players. <laughs> you just swap players. Yeah. You know, and if somebody else
1: wants to, you know,
0: bring their own kit out,
1: I was always fine with that. Yeah. You know, because my role, whether it's as a studio owner or a producer or an engineer, my role is simply to facilitate the vision of the artist. Yeah. And so if he says, you know, I want, I want Chester Thompson to come play drums, and Chester is going to bring his own kit. Cool. I'm happy with it. Yeah. You know, it's how I got to meet Chester. Yeah. And you know, it's going to sound good. Well, yeah, yeah. It's Chester Thompson. Yeah. If he's good enough for Phil Collins, he's good enough for this girl that I've recorded <laughs> with. And so it was all, it's all great. I've just, I've gotten to learn so much and play with some of the coolest people ever. And so that was kind of where our life was. Carolyn and I were touring, uh, playing Western Swing. Yeah. And when I wasn't there, I would be working in the studio or working around town. And I had an assistant that started with me when I built a new studio. A guy named Mark Hornsby, and he was a very talented assistant. Came on then, and after a couple of years he left to go to Florida and open the studio, a hurricane took his studio away, wow. and he came back to Nashville and went from being my assistant to he was the tenant in my B room right. and a client. Yeah, and so you know it was it worked great for us. So about six years ago, he came to work at Sweetwater as the director of recording. Yeah, so running that facility over there, and when he came up and the first session he had, he realized oh there's no session players in Fort Wayne yeah and he was used to to the guys that he worked with at my studio yeah so he I used I was coming up here I've been coming up here for almost six years now to play on you know to play on records whenever they came up and they ended up Mark thought quite rightly that a studio like this needs to have an on-call team and so we actually have at Sweetwater an in-house rhythm section so you know, we may do a folk record with somebody like Jonathan Brooke, and then we'll turn around and do something with Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. Because all of us are used to doing that. Yeah. And and so after two and a half or so years, three years of coming up here to play, he'd gotten uh, Don Carr playing guitar and, and Nick Devergilio. Mm-hmm. He'd gotten a, a group of guys that were, that were pretty comfortable, and I was the one coming up. And so I was offered a job, and I thought i've been in nashville for 31 years the city's changing the music business is changing and so i took the gig we sold the studio and came up here and i've been working here as a producer and engineer and bass player for the last two and a half
0: years that's fantastic yeah it's fun yeah and it's it's a neat environment i mean it you're not you don't feel like you're stuck in the studio all the time you know what i mean it's it's you can get out, and there's people around, and and there's it feels like it, there's energy here. Right? There is energy here.
1: So, have you talked to on your podcast about this joint, about this place? A little bit. We didn't we, we didn't touch on it too much. Right. No. The main the main thing, you know, there it's on, an online retailer yeah. that also has a music store on the property. So, what most people don't know, we have over fifteen hundred employees here. Yeah. Which is why. Our lunchroom has good food. Yeah. We have a, a freestanding coffee bar, so you can go get a latte in the middle of your work. And the studio is in that complex. Yeah, I don't have to go outside or anything. You don't have to go outside. And so for us, and, and since we're at Sweetwater, if somebody comes, if a client comes in and thinks, you know what, I'd really love to play on this song. I want to play you know, a Martin D-45. Yeah. We can make that happen. Yeah. You know one. there's one handy. Yeah. You know, or or a Gretsch White fal- Falcon if you want that sound. Yeah. So so even though they probably don't look at it this way, we just figure that, you know, the rest of the building is a great resource for us. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's the biggest resource you can have. Yeah,
1: I don't I don't I don't think Chuck would really appreciate me going, Oh yeah, that
0: warehouse, yeah that's just that's just to help the studio out. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. So, back in Nashville, when you originally, I just want to jump back there, when you originally sure. got to Nashville for the first time, what was that experience like? Was it kind of daunting, or did you feel like yeah, it scary really, Yeah, scary
1: would be a really good word. Yeah. And because we knew we wanted to come up. We actually had driven up the, the way it worked for us. You know, we knew people. We knew a few, a few people in Nashville. Yeah. You know, just other Texas guys that had moved up there. So, we knew a couple... But we decided to make the jump and we'd had a pretty good we'd come up in november to just see the place and go yeah i think we could live here so when we moved literally everything we owned and our cat was in my van and a trailer oh yeah so it was it was all with us and we happened to choose the day that had the record cold since they'd been keeping records and it was either January 13th and 17 below, or it was January 17th and 13 below. Yeah. But it was the coldest Nashville had ever been. And there was about nine inches of snow on the ground. And that was the day we got to Nashville. Wow. And if the roads had been clear, I probably would have gone, you know, Atlanta's looking pretty good. (laughs) And and we found a place right down on Music Row. So we were there for a couple of years. And the hardest thing, it's like anything else. If you were all of a sudden, you had to move, you know, like to Newfoundland or somewhere. Yeah. Where you don't know anybody, but you know what to do. You know, you know how to work. Yeah. But you have to find the guys that will hire you to do that. So for us, that was the hardest part after any time you're in a place, you know, growing up in a place and you know a bunch of folks. And so all of a sudden we moved to a place where we didn't know anybody and we needed to work. Yeah. So you have to...
0: You actually have to get out and meet folks, and, and try yeah, to just find because, it. just like here, you have a team, and you get used to your team, and it's not as if just guys are coming in left, right, and center in and out. A lot of, especially in Nashville too, you you get used to working with the players that, you're used to, yeah, and then you have to try to break in to that set of people.
1: You ha- yeah, you have to go and, you know, and the whole thing. It's like. I've, I've met a lot of guys from all over the world that want to move to Nashville to become session players or songwriters or, you know, whatever it is yeah. they want to come and be. And they'll be there for a few months and go, yeah, you just can't get work because it's all a click. It's yeah. all about who you know. And they're missing the point. It's not who you know, it's who do you know will do a good job. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's not that I call somebody because I know them. I call them because I've worked with them and I know that they will do the job I want them to do. Yeah. And so, you know, guitar players would come, you know, they'd call the studio, because we we're online. They'd call the studio and go, hey, you know, I just moved to Nashville, I'm a guitar player. And my response is, great. great. <laughs> you know, am I going to call them? No. Because I have my, you know, the four or five guys who are my core guys. You know, if I need a guitar player for a session, I'm going to call him and then work my way down the list. Yeah. But in Nashville, that list is like 30 players long. Yeah. Of guys that you know are just stupidly good guitar players. And so for some guy that I don't know to call me on the phone and go, hey, I'd like for you to call me, it's like, yeah, I I can. Yeah. And and so it's not a click, it's more like for you, when you're wearing your producer hat and some artist, you know, is coming in to do a record, if the record is not good. It's your fault. Yeah. And so what you do is you call the guys that you know will make the record good. Yeah. So so I thought that whole it's not fought, fight, fighting the click, it's just getting to know people. And we played a lot, and you know we were fortunate that, that we weren't stuck in Nashville. You know, we'd be there, and then we'd go out on the road for two weeks or a month, so we'd have money when we came back. Exactly. So it was just you know you meet people, make friends.
0: Yeah. And we did that for thirty-one years that's a. I uh, i mean i think you have to have the personality for that too right there's part of you know you can meet people but you have to have the right skills to be able to talk to someone correctly that they want to even have be around you yeah
1: yes I mean, yeah i mean that's people that's,
0: skills are so important as a musician um you know from getting the gig or staying in the gig um and after you leave you, you know you want people to say you know, I love that guy or gal or, uh, yeah. you know, it's a lot of fun to be around and brings joy to the session and, but still really delivers all those things.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a lot to it that you don't think about. I mean, as for me as a freelance bass player, so if somebody calls me, this is yeah, a better example of that. If someone calls me and says, I need a bass player, you know, are you available to work such and such? If I'm not, I'm going to help them find somebody Yeah. just because they still need a bass player just because I can't do it. They still need a bass player. Yeah. And or if I'm doing a gig and I have to sub it out, then I'm going to find the bass player for it. But it's but you can't just go, okay, he's a nice guy or he's a good player or he knows his style of music. For me, whether it's my gig or somebody else, I'm going to find somebody that does all those things. And isn't gonna try to take the gig. Oh yeah. And so, so my thing, gosh, I've been doing this for thirty years. If I'm subbing in on a band, you know, somebody called me for it, and I've gotten more work over the last thirty years from bass players than I have from any other people. Wow. Because it's it's guys calling me to sub. Yeah. And and so I'll go play the gig, you know, and I'm. If I screw it up, it reflects on them. So I'm I have to do good, but every time it's like. That was, you, you just tell the artist, whoever you're working for, that was great fun. If so-and-so can't make another one, I'd be happy to fill in for him again. Yeah, It's never asking for the gig, yeah. just saying that I enjoyed it. And I'd be happy to help out if I can.
0: Yeah. That's a smart way to look at it. Yeah. And,
1: yeah. and it's fair. So, yeah. because I don't want to take anybody's job, you know, even with the, the thing I did in El Paso this weekend, you know, I was helping out a friend. Yeah. And so I'm not going to go take that job because it's his job or somebody's job that has time to give it the full thing. So it, it, it lets me play with some interesting people.
0: Yeah. And and you would keep busier that way because people trust that you'll do the job and not be the guy. And not try going. to snake it out from them. Yeah. 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 And that's that, I think that's a big issue with musicians because a lot of musicians are very insecure they Um,
1: they are and in small towns especially hmm. they don't get the fact that we're none of us are in competition yeah you know there is i am i am not competing with any other bass player in fort wayne when i was in nashville i wasn't competing with any other bass player in nashville i knew you know i knew all the guys that were working around doing the things that i was doing yeah and i'm happy for them to be working yeah. you know in Fort Wayne I'd like for there to be more gigs so everybody could be working Yeah, you know because I don't want anyone's gig I just want
0: to go play yeah that yeah, makes total sense uh-huh. going back to recording in your first setup you had the DA88s and your your Mackie console my trusty Mackie 1604 I just pulled a, uh, a Mackie out of one of my best friends studio <laughs> <laughs> like three days ago man and <laughs> there was so much dust on it and but he's been using and he produces you know what he produces really great stuff sure and it sounds really you know all of a sudden, but most of the time i mean he had a he has a nice set of outboard uh preamps and he's just using as a, a listen device but i finally got him into a, a digital console and, and uh, you know i said welcome to <laughs> welcome to the 2000s yeah yeah welcome to 2005 <laughs> bud but uh uh what was your kind of next what was your next step in the in gear um after that well i started buying outboard gear very early yeah
1: and and the reason so i had the the two two d88s and which i bought over the Mackies because are the the a dance yeah you know if you remember those i had the a then yeah. you know why i bought the yeah the d88s and and my friend leonard who is a an engineer producer and, and musician I was talking to him right when I was about to pull the trigger on that and I said, Leonard, so we've got, you know, I want to do this MDM thing. We've got the 88s and we've got the 8 ADATs and he just said, get the
0: D88s. He I said, was lucky mine, mine held up, I had one bad one that replaced, but I was lucky mine held up pretty good. Oh, he did it.
1: He was yeah. simpler than that. Yeah. Cause I, you know, went to his office and he had a, actually he had a fair light if you remember, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. his main working yeah. tool and he said. You need to buy D88s, and here's why. And I said, All right. And he went into the office and pulled a VHS tape out and went, This is how big 20 minutes of eight tracks is. And then he pulled out one of those little D88 tapes and said, This is 108 minutes of eight tracks. Yeah. Think about the storage. Yeah. And I went, So D88s are a really good thing. And it happens the converters were a generation newer, the transport was pretty solid, and they locked faster. Yeah. And so it was a good call. I ended up, Before I actually moved fully into Pro Tools, I ended up with 56 channels online of the 88s. And then another two or three machines, one of them I left with the guitar player so he could do overdubs at home and just bring the tape back over. Yeah. Um, And then, so after I'd been, for a couple of years, and and I was, my main account in those days, that was the, the hot, for karaoke we're talking about the late 90s yeah and mid to late 90s and so I stumbled into an account where I was doing sound alike tracks for the karaoke market yeah and it happens that we were doing them real drums you know there we weren't programming stuff it was all played yeah so so we were kind of the niche of the high-end karaoke stuff at that time and so I was working literally 80 to 100
0: hours a week
1: doing that stuff with well, yeah. the right
0: players, you certainly could whip them off way faster than having to program all. Of
1: them. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and so I thought I need to buy a console, and ended up with a Dutch console called a DNR. It's forty-eight input, and it it suited my needs perfectly. Yeah, you know, with forty, I could keep forty-eight tracks always ready, and fifty-six or however many I needed up on the top, and I used that. Actually, I sold that when I sold my studio. Oh. So all of a sudden, in a basement in East Nashville, yeah. I had a nine-foot-long console with 48 channels of D88s or 56, however it was. Yeah. But at the same time that I was doing that, I also was writing reviews and articles for Recording Magazine okay, yeah. um, based out of Boulder. Yep. And so I would review gear for them and basically if if i liked what i reviewed i'd buy it yeah so by the time i sold the studio i had i think i was up to about 60 channels of outboard prees. wow 48 channels of outboard compressors Jeez. and plus all the eqs and stuff that yeah. got you know and it was generally really good stuff so yeah. so i had all that stuff anyway and and so it was it was just, you know, I was playing with the toys, and working that much, you get to experiment yeah. all the time. It's not like, okay, my band's been working on this record for two years, you know. It's, I was doing 100 tracks a month from wow. scratch. Yeah. You know, recording, usually one at a time, because we're trying to get it note for note. Yeah. So, you know, guitar comes in, hey, I got these new mics, let's try them on this, on the guitar tonight. Yeah. You know, so I got to play with a whole bunch of gear bought the stuff I liked and it was great. And you have to test them to write a review for them. Absolutely. So, yeah. And so for me, and and because I was doing 100 tracks a month, you know, it was, I was making, I had money to buy gear. Yeah. yeah. And so I did. And then at some point that 80 to a hundred hours a month was just, you know, it, it was, the house was a studio. Yeah. And so we bought the property and built the, the new studio so that Carolyn could have a life of her own. And, but I was still working that much, yeah. so it was it, it was a chance to really get to play with a bunch of gear every day and not have to start from scratch. You know, so it was great. Yeah. It was great. I think that was the best learning tool I could have had. That and being able to call guys and go. So when you recorded this record, how did you get that sound? Yeah, you know, because again, Nashville, so I knew them. You know, if you can, if you're listening to an old Metallica record and going. I don't know how they got that that sound. You just call them, and it worked great. Right. So, so I did that, and I got into Pro Tools. I bought it just really for that was my mixdown deck was Pro. I didn't yeah. trust it because I didn't know it. Yeah. And I got into it just before Pro Tools four came out. Okay. Yeah. So I've gone from four all the way up to whatever they're calling it now. Yeah. Um, and. It's gotten better enough that probably ten or, well, eight or ten years ago, the D88s got retired. Yeah. And I've been working in, you know, with Pro Tools as my main recording medium. And then it took about five years of that before I went, I guess I could mix in the box, too, because I was recording to Pro Tools, but I was treating it like a giant tape recorder. Yeah. And, And then mixing through the console and all the outboard gear. And as it got better, it's really not that the you know, Pro Tools didn't work before that, but the expectations of our clients have changed quite a bit in the last ten years. Yeah. Because it used to be, like when I started working, I've got tape machines, I've got outboard gear, I have a folder for every project that's filled with recall sheets for every piece of outboard gear. Yeah. And so you mix the record and you send it to the client, they go, great, and then a week later they call and go, okay, in this song I need the vocals to be like 3 dB hotter. When, I, when you're working with a console, it's like, okay, so it's gonna take a half a day to reset, to patch, to, yeah. to repatch for your mix and reset everything. And with Pro Tools, it's so ubiquitous now. They don't wanna pay for that. No. They, wanna, they just wanna go, I need you to do that and can I get it this afternoon? And so you really, for us, the workflow just got simpler if we stayed within the confines of Pro Tools, yeah. and you mix it, and when the client does that, you just open the session, turn it down, reprint it, send
0: it off, and it's done. Yeah, I think the in, kind of in-between stage was doing stems too, right? So you, did you do that yeah. at all? I, I really didn't, I knew some people that
1: did, but yeah. since since I was delivering finished product to the client, then. I just went ahead and, and printed the mixes like I wanted. Yeah, you know I did do stuff when it was the karaoke market. You you give them the instrumental track, and then you give them the track where the vocals on one side or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. you know just however it is so, so the karaoke guys can hear it. But but it, I didn't do stems, and I did get into a thing for a while where I was treating the console like a summing bus. Yeah, you know so before I before I finally. The console was just where the volume knob was. Yeah. So everything your uh, unity and yeah. and you just kind of ran yeah, everything through it. And and I could patch in and do all that. Yeah. I still prefer it, the way I was working in my place. I prefer tracking through the with the console just because I could pull up uh, headphone mixes quicker. Yeah. You know, it was just easier to go there. We'll slide up channel four, and now we can hear the kick drum a little better. Yeah. So that that was the way that I approached that. And, but but with stems, it's or summing buses, it's the same thing as stems. All our drums are going to go into this two channels, and then we can process them with analog gear. Yeah, you know, if, if you want to smash something, you know, then you just plug eleven seventy sixes into that, and off you go. Yeah. But it, but the plugins really have got the math has gotten better, and so I'm not as concerned about an objective, you know, what sounds better, a vintage Teletronics LA two A or the one that's in the UAD box. Yeah. Because really, when, when you sit down to start to mix, you generally know the sound that, you're good, that you want. Yeah. And, and so you just work with what you have to get that sound. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it's outboard, inboard, you know, a plug-in. As long as it does the job, it doesn't detract, it's fine.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, because you just, you want to head to a certain direction uh, but you're not necessarily saying, well, this is exactly like this, but I want something to sound very similar to that, right? Yeah, or, you
1: want, it's it's just a uh, tool. I think my buddy, Lynn, who works here, Lynn's another, Lynn Fuston is another Nashville engineer Yeah. who, one of the things he was really active in the uh, contemporary Christian music community, but more, just as important. He was one of about four or five guys in Nashville that, if you were going to do a seventy-piece orchestra, Lynn probably needed to be the engineer oh, yeah. because he was he was competent and comfortable working with a seventy-piece orchestra and the budgets that that implies. Yeah. So Lynn's up here now, and he's always been interested in in doing those kind of comparisons. Yeah. You know, what's the difference between a U sixty-seven, U eighty-seven? He'd set them up, and try them. And so years ago, he did something called the Mic Pre CD, yeah. which, which is around and is probably still available online, where he really got about 60 different microphone preamps and figured out a way to, to bring one microphone into all these preamps, maybe five at a time, yeah. and record them all so you can listen. You go, okay, what does a John Hardy preamp sound like? What does a Daking preamp sound like? Yeah. What does a Neve preamp sound like? And you could pull up this basically the same performance on all of those pre's and decide which one you like better. And so that was, a, so he's that kind of guy. And we just did, since you mentioned it, um, he just did a Pultec shootout here, oh, yeah. you know, with all of the various Pultec clones that are out yeah. and as well as a real Pultec. Yeah. And I think that's online somewhere, you know, that's at like Sweetwater. That, yeah. So you can download the tracks and go, okay. So this is what it sounds like. Yeah. And and both of those, he did it with microphones. He's done a, you know, that's that's kind of what Lynn loves. to That's his hobby, one of his hobbies. Yeah. Is doing that kind of really objective, uh, A B comparisons, and it's great because, you know, like with the mic pre C D, if you don't hear the difference between that channel of a Mackie preamp. And a three thousand dollar Rupert Neve preamp, yeah. then you don't need to spend the money on the Rupert Neve. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. That's true. <laughs> you know, and that's not objectively good or bad. It's just yeah. saying, put your money where you can hear your difference. Yeah. And and so his his the, the CDs that he's put out over the years have helped a lot of people to spend a lot of money, and probably helped a lot of people to save a lot of money. Yeah. You know, because. I was lucky in that number one, I was in a town that where you could rent vintage gear, and I was in a position where I could try all the new stuff before it came out. Yeah, and so I could play with it and decide whether I liked it or not. But if you live, you know, like
0: where, like where you live,
1: then there's not a store you can go get that. You know, no. And and
0: And yeah, I was talking to Mitch about this, uh, and music stores have really changed what, what I was saying is that you 15-20 years ago I used to be able to go into a music store and there'd be a fair amount of recording equipment in a regular store they'd have a few recording consoles uh, at least where I was um, and there'd be a mix of some low end some mid and maybe they'd have one nice higher end piece at least you had a chance to put your hands on it right? Sure. Now you go into uh, most music stores um, it, you don't have you get to a certain level and it, it stops there's no more equipment above you know this so right. you don't get to have your chance to put your hands on something and sometimes that's all it takes you just want to sit and see what that feels like or um, or have a chance to uh, lots of times I remember being able to just take home gear whenever I wanted to go to the store yeah I need to I need to if tire you're that a good customer. If you're a customer yeah and before I came here uh, there's a, there was a
1: store that I dealt with in Nashville for 30 years, yeah. and you know I spent a ton of money with them over the years. But because of that and the relationship I had with the owner, I could go in and go, "Yeah, I want to try this box." And and my agreement with them was, if I tried it, it you know, if they gave me a box to try and I bought it, it was going to be from them. Yeah, you know, because that was at the yeah, point that. Yeah. that was at the point that we did have. Um, the, the, that we did have the internet, so you could you could go, you know, go down to your local store and try something, and then you go, hey, let's look online and see what we can buy it for. And and I never did that. Yeah. You know, it's, because partly it's, you know, I know I'm at Sweetwater and we're a large online retailer, but I've, I've always been a fan of local music stores. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of throughout this building. You know, well, it happens that this is my local music store yeah. now.
0: Yeah. For me now, when I go in, I just find there's nothing I want to try. There's nothing, you know, worthwhile. <laughs> it's like there's nothing in there. That's like, that's good enough that I actually would want to take home. But before there used to be, and maybe it's just because my standards are different or maybe it's, but I don't think there's as much available. So for someone like me and growing up in Nash or spending so much time in Nashville would have been great because you do have a lot of choices there. But, um, it's just hard to get your hands on some without just having to bite the bullet. So you do rely a lot on, uh, you know, those mic preamp shootouts and absolutely. And you know, the, the videos like Mitch does here and, um, all those things, you, you, you really rely mm-hmm. heavy on that stuff.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, for, if you're not in a recording center, yeah. you know, if you're in LA, you can get a microphone. Yeah. If you're in Nashville or New York, you can get a microphone to try. Uh, if you're in
0: bright. Ontario yeah not so much no you get and some things but not you know you have some friends and studios around you could grab from if someone has this but oh um, yeah and the, it's not like you you're in Nashville
1: no and and then what a lot of people go is oh we have forums you know I'll go look on gear sluts and see what oh, yeah. they say about that that's it that's the worst place oh and I was one of the first 20 members of oh, Gear you, Sluts. yeah because because Jules who started Jules Stanton yeah. you know was was an acquaintance, and we'd met at AES shows and stuff. So I was there pretty early. Yeah. But you know, filtering signal to noise on any forum now is just really scary. Yeah. And and so, rather than go post something like that in a public place, I'll call somebody. Yeah. You know. And so the goal is to have somebody that you could call that you trust. Yeah. You know. And if it, and for me, it was all people that I'd worked with before so so we had a personal relationship you know so if you're a guy that's wanting to to start building a studio hopefully there's somebody in your neighborhood you know within driving distance that you've worked in their studios and so if that's the closest if that's the most experienced person you know then lean on them yeah you know help them
0: out whenever you can and then use them as a source of information yeah it's important because that's you need that trust from people to to know what to do and Oh, yeah, I ideas and yeah, because there's a zillion ways to do anything. Exactly. Yeah. And and so,
1: for, you know, for me, mostly, if you don't as an engineer, uh, you know, your your first goal is like, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. Yeah. And and once you get past that, like I said earlier, you're facilitating an artist's vision. Yeah. And so if the artist is happy, I'm happy, yeah. you know, and this is something that's, that's an ongoing thing. When I'm working with clients here at Sweetwater, you know, I'll tell them that what they're, they're paying me to give them my best advice based on the years that I've been doing this. I mean, that's, that's my job. Yeah. If they don't choose to take my advice, my feelings aren't at all hurt yeah. because it's not my record. Right, It's their record, so I'm there to make them happy. You know, and like I say, if if they go, yeah, I heard what you said, let's not do that. Okay. You know, but because I've told them, I've fulfilled my duty, and, and now let's make the record that makes them happy. Yeah,
0: makes perfect sense.
1: And sometimes they'll end up saying, I want you to do this, and I think, that is really wacky. Yeah. And then I do it and go, okay, that's really cool. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for the next time I want something really wacky. Yeah. So, you know, it's all learn every, every day is a learning experience. I spent today, we did the first tracking session for the first half of a young man's album. Mm-hmm. Had a great time doing it. Yeah. And and some stuff that I wouldn't have thought of, you know, I'm working with, with really good players, the the rhythm section here. Mm-hmm. And so, they'll come up with an idea and you just go, sure, let's try that. Yeah. And then sometimes we try that and go, yeah, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's the same thing you try it. Yeah. in Nashville all the session guys will offer opinions and you can take them or you could not. And yeah. nobody gets their feelings hurt about that because we're all after the same goal. Yeah. You know, make the song sound great.
0: Yeah. And as a great producer, that's what you do. You hire the right guys for the right job and you don't expect them to come in and you tell them everything to play. You hire the guys so you don't have to tell them everything to play. Right. And, but you can also steer them if, if it's not exactly what you're thinking of. Sure. Yeah. And and that's kind of the, that's the idea is we're just trying to
1: you know, we're working together and this is our common goal. Yeah. And and so it's it's fun, it's really social, you know, cuz I'm hanging with guys that I know and I like to hang with. Yeah. So, you know, that was true in Nashville, it's true up here. Yeah. And then at the end of the day we go, "Man, that was good work. I'm happy with that."
0: And then we all get from the Sweetwater Coffee Shop, a latte. Yeah, that's fantastic. And Carolyn just dropped it. Off. I didn't even know it was her until she was walking away and said, "Oh, there she is." Yeah, we're we're actually
1: uh, doing we're rehearsing for our Prague Rock Ukulele Cruise that we're doing in February. That's, that sounds amazing. <laughs> that's wacky, is yeah. what it is. And and building the tracks, you know, just if you're a prog fan then you know there's layers and layers and layers of stuff yeah and then trying to get those layers and layers of stuff on ukuleles only wow it's it's pretty interesting i'm looking forward to hearing what the record's going to be like yeah because we're, we're finishing a record now that may or may not be ready in time for the cruise yeah but we have another record to sell yeah. you know if you're doing something like old king crimson or genesis or uh one of the songs carolyn's singing because carolyn's in the band yeah so you've heard her singing Patsy Cline songs. Yeah. On the first ukulele record, she's doing a Zeppelin song. Wow. On the new ukulele record, she's doing a couple. One of them, do you remember the Emerson, Lake, and Palmer song? Uh, it's called Carnival Number 9. Yeah, I think I know that one. But yeah. it's the one that, that starts with, welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Yeah. Yeah. So for the people who only know Carolyn as singing Patsy Cline songs or Western Swing songs, it's like, holy cow, where did that come from?
0: Yeah. So we have, we have a great time doing it. So the studios here are pretty impressive. They are. Um, what was it like jumping from your studio that you've been sitting in for a long time to the facilities here? The biggest thing is
1: and this is going to sound weird cuz you've seen our studios yeah. here. The biggest thing is there's less gear here than I had. I oh, had. Yeah. You know, well, well partly we have a ton of microphones, but the microphones generally are mics that we sell. Yeah. And probably a third to a half of mine were vintage microphones. Yeah. And you know, so it just, it's the new ones work great, but it's kind of like when you go for that, go for your comfort level, you go for what you know. Yeah. And so the weirdest thing was learning what's here that does the same, does the jobs that I need to do. Yeah. You know, and some of that, some of the stuff, like if you're pulling out a 70 year old RCA ribbon mic, it's kind of like it's really hard to get all the way there. Yeah. But, you know, we have stuff. Yeah. There's, there's great. There, there's still great equipment being made. Yeah. And and so that's part of the fun of it. So do you miss a lot of that gear or if you just moved on <laughs> no. from it? No. No. I mean, there there's times when you just think, man, I'd love to have a pair of KM84s. You yeah. know, the old Neumann small diaphragms mm-hmm. or a bunch of my old tube mics or the ribbons. But I have that truthfully from the studio viewpoint and you know, it's a studio I built to my own specifications from the ground up. Yeah. So the, the two things that I miss in that, that I wish we had here, I had probably the best sounding Leslie cabinet I've ever heard. Oh yeah. So, so to go with the Hammond organ. Yeah. Um, and that was spectacular. The other thing I miss are my books because the way my studio was built, there were about 7,000 volumes you know, probably 4,000 in the main tracking room filled one whole wall, Yeah. you know, I, it was a write-off because they're diffusers. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and in the ISOs, there were shelves that were filled with books. I miss my books because those are the ones, you know, that you go, you know, it'd be fun to read. Yeah, it's there, you know, or reread. Yeah. Or, or if you're telling somebody a story and you think, yeah, where did I, there's a, that I want to get, you know, and it's out of a Stephen Jay Gold book. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that book anymore. Oh, yeah. I know where it is on the shelves in that studio. Yeah. But, you know, so I used to use that just as a refresher. I could go and grab the book and read it. And not having my books is probably the weirdest thing about not being in my studio anymore. Yeah. You know, the rest of it, it's, it's gear. You know, I just like recording talented people. Yeah. And we'll record them however they need to be recorded. So, what's your. Uh, What's your favorite piece of gear here now? What's your. Uh... You know, it's probably either the Manly Reference Gold, mm-hmm. is a great mic, and uh, Telefunken's U47. Yeah. Because I had, I had U47s in my room, and the Telefunken sounds great. Yeah. You know, I'm happy to have it. These SM7s that you have, that we're talking in today, uh, they're also our go to male vocal rock mic yeah they're they're a great mic you know for yeah. for somebody who's going to be a, uh, whether it's a screamer yeah you know someone who's doing like a metal thing uh, we'll pull out an sm7 yeah i actually have one in the iso today for today's singer who's really more of a contemporary country guy yeah because he sounds great on it yeah you know but i but those two i love the reference gold because i found out um, i play upright too well you know that yeah and I've had a, a setup that I used for playing upright for you know eight or ten years now, which involved both a, a U47 and a vintage ribbon mic. And so I was working one day, and and if I, I'm in a hurry at home, I would just use the U47. And I was in a hurry one day here and needed to cut a bass track. The U47 was in use in another room. Oh yeah. So I went okay. I'll try this Manly. and it was good. Yeah. So so. I've kind of moved over to where the Manley is my go-to upright bass mic now, yeah. which I've never heard anybody else using one
0: for that purpose. Yeah. But for my bass and the way I like to bass the sounds, okay, we're good. Now in uh, plug-in land, um, do you have any favorites you're working with now? Uh, for reverbs, I've been playing and loving the altiverb yeah. for a long time. Yeah, me too. You know, Because you end up
1: finding a room that sounds great, uh, I just did a classical guitar record with a a, a guy that's it's going to be a stunning record, and we just decided let's put some ambience on it, and nothing worked like the Altoverb yeah you know. And so that's everything for a real uh, room ambience. So so that's great, and their plates are good. Yeah. So so that for plug-ins, the ozone stuff is pretty darned amazing. I'm not deep enough into that yet. Yeah. But, you know, that's some of the guys here who work with ozone all the time, they'll pull stuff out. They'll pull up an ozone plug-in and do things that I'm like, wow, how did you do that? And how how, how do it know? Yeah. <laughs> it's got to turn knobs. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and so so I think if there's two that, that knock me out every every time I plug them in. You know, sometimes, obviously, nothing works 100% of the time. No. But those things are great for what they do. You know, for regular EQs, this is... Probably going back to what we were saying earlier, I'm not nearly as concerned about you know, whether I'm using uh, a UAD version of an 11, you know a 1073. I'm not as concerned with that because I'm using them as a tool yeah. you know, to either remove a frequency or enhance a frequency. and if I can do that, then I don't care which one I use yeah. You know, if I'm working fast or doing a big project, I like to be able to pull up something that I can see what it's doing. Yeah. Uh, If I'm after something that's a little different, then then one of the uh, Neve 1073 plugins will work great because it's got a thing.
0: Yeah. You know, the UADs are great for that. Yeah. So I just downloaded their uh, new 40L plugin, and it was interesting uh, because Studio used to work at. 40 I don't have one in my studio but um, it sounds pretty good yeah, yeah. there' just it feels like you know I, a plug-in I used to use all the time gosh years ago was uh, or a patch on the 40 I was a buckram. Um, and it was just this patch I'd like to put on the snare and I haven't used it in years. And it's like, the first thing I went to So I got to find that patch. And it's like, as soon as I, it took me back. It's like having something, some type of food that you haven't had for years and it takes you back or smelling something. It was just that sound. It was like, oh, my God, it just took me back like 20 years. It was fantastic. Oh, that's fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, so I, you know, I'll be, this is another one of those things because we're who we are. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of people, you know, like the reps will come in who sell stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so the studios, because they're part of Sweetwater, are also part of the sales apparatus. Yeah. In that, you know, if, if somebody wants to come in and look at the the SSL, you know, AWS, yeah, to buy one, well, where can they try one out? We've got one in Studio B. Yeah. And so we have an insane number of plugins on all our Pro Tools rigs. Yeah, I, I mean, just stupid amounts. Yeah. And. And that's fine because we can play with them. But what it's really interesting, there are four of us in the, that work in the studio that are engineers. Yeah. The four of us have different approaches to all that. So right. my favorites are not anybody else's yeah. and vice versa. You know, so, so you find yourself, if you get called and say, yeah, you need to go in and tweak so-and-so's mix, you know, because he's out of town or unavailable when the client wants it, yeah. then I'll go in and open their session and go oh really they're using that oh let's let's see what that does yeah you know so that's when i see new plugins mostly is if i'm looking at something that one of the other guys is doing yeah and you just play with it and go yeah this is nice i like that
0: yeah and the cool thing is with all that stuff it doesn't mean one is better than the other oh. at all it's just your approach of getting to where you want to get to at the end
1: well yeah and and there are you know you you go for the the general idea Yeah. And then if, if that one doesn't get there, then you open another one and see if that'll get you all the way. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I did, you get into that ha- habit, this is going back to the days when I was working 100 hours a week. Yeah. And you, just, you set your own limitations, because limitations are where you approve as an engineer. Yeah. So I did a project one time where I, here was my limitation. I chose, I said, I'm gonna do this record and I don't want to EQ anything in the mix. So if you cut that tool out, that means you've got to do it another way, yeah. another way yeah. which is through microphone choice. Yeah. and you know, Or you may go, I'm going to do this record. A friend of mine told me about doing, he did a whole record, and, and it was uh, an established country artist. And he walked in one day and went, man, I used to work with 58, SM57s all the time. So he did the whole record, everything except the lead vocals, with a Shure SM57. You know, and the drummers were like, "Really, you're setting these up?" And then they go, "Yeah, it sounds great." Yeah. So you know, you you just experiment. You know, sometimes I'll decide I'm not going to EQ anything tracking. That's actually common for me. Yeah, me too. You know, find the sound you want, print it, and if you need to do, the more you can do before you start mixing, the less you have to mix. Yeah. You know, so if you get good quality going to tape, then you're then you're three quarters of the way there.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. I'd like to get the source just as clean and as possible, a little compression or a little, you know, choose, choose the right mic pre and and, uh, you know, have the right player um, yep. and uh, giving you the right tone, um, then you should be golden. Well, sure. And, it, and it's so
1: much of it is just if you have the right, choose the right tool to start with. Yeah. And and it makes everything easy. A good example for for today's record as a session guy, I mean, when I was moving from studio to studio and working for a bunch of different clients, my my non-cartridge rig, I'd carry six basses in, yeah. and use the bass that's appropriate for the session, yeah. and I still, you know, generally have five out, four or five out here. Yeah. But you know, it's like the record I'm doing today. Uh, I knew what the sound was he was going for, and so you go, I want this precision that has these strings on it. And since i 've chosen that, I expect that that when I mix the record, i won't do anything to the bass yeah because I got the sound right going in, yeah you know, and actually i'm not engineering on on this right now because I 'm playing, yeah, so Bobby, one of our other engineers, has been doing a great job on the tracking side,
0: you know and he could mix it too but yeah. but since i'm the producer i'll do it, yeah, so it's fun, excellent well it's uh I know you've uh, taking a bunch of your time. You got a rehearsal to get to and all that great stuff. I uh, appreciate you taking some time and talking shop and oh, finding to. a bit more about you. And um, it's uh, I like it here. The first time I came in earlier uh, uh, in the, this past summer and you gave me the full tour and I like, yeah, this is a really kind of cool environment they have going on here and um, it must be a real fun place to come in to work even though it's Um, You know, sometimes it's nice to be on your own and have your own little spot and you do what you want. But then if the environment's neat and it gives you energy, because I think you can get stuck in, you know, in your basement of your house or in a room somewhere that's your own and you just kind of, I I find I constantly have to change my layout um, or keep every once in a while just making things a little different to make the energy feel better so you don't feel like I'm stuck in the same spot every single time I see I understand you know um but I feel here you kind of get that environment from the people you know it just it feels like there's just energy here you do and remember we have three rooms yeah so if I'm sitting in like today sitting in A which
1: is the big room yeah where we track where I can go into a smaller room or an even smaller room so it's not like you walk in and go oh yeah that's that chair I've sat in every day for eight years yeah (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you go sit over here yeah. right? or you go sit somewhere else. But for me it was, you know, I had honestly, from the time that that 12 year old me who did my first American Legion gig, yeah. uh, I've essentially been self-employed for almost 50 years. So I've never like been an employee, but if you're you know, working for an artist, you're still self-employed because they can fire you at any time yeah. Yeah. and often will. Yeah. So for for me, it was like, well, I've never had a job with benefits before. Yeah. You know, and, and having other other engineers on staff to, to bounce ideas off of, or you know, when you work in your basement, if you've got a hard deadline, you might not sleep very much for a few days. Yeah. And here, if I were to catch the flu, you know, don't have to go home and lay down for a couple of days. There's other engineers here that could that will help out yeah step in there. and so to me that's great yeah. i mean it's it's interesting going from being self-employed to being part of a team yeah
0: and so that's that's kind of what makes this a cool place yeah that's excellent well once again appreciate it and uh maybe sometime in the future we'll sit down again and talk more gear and more stuff and absolutely and, one of uh, these
1: one of these days we need to come up and, and visit y'all up in beautiful ontario yeah you do that we'll do it not there. this time
0: of year no No, summertime.
1: Yeah, I'd like to catch, you know, that that two weeks that y'all have summer up there in Canada. (laughs)
0: That's a week and a half. (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Dave. appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks.